Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And uh, this is how the show starts. It's pretty simple. I ask my guest who they are. So who are you? Hello, uh, my name's Lewis Hobber. Who am I? Mm. I mean, man, it's a big one. Uh, I, 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 I hate answering with work, but I also hate people who answer with like ephemeral, like, I'm a dreamer, I'm a traveller, I'm a storyteller. You're like, yeah, right, buddy, yeah. just say you like... Well, how, do, how do you pay your bills? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, when you go to the bank, what is the majority of money going in there from? <laughs> yeah, that's right. When, when, what do you write when you come through customs? <laughs> yeah, because yeah, if you write dreamer, I imagine you get a lot of full body searches. <laughs> Yeah, they're like, we know the acid is here somewhere, sir. Uh, I work in, uh, so I work in radio. I work in, I do podcasting. I kind of, I don't necessarily call myself a comedian, but I do work in comedy, Mm. if that makes sense. I kind of am a, uh, I I like to, I work in entertainment. I'm 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 a jester, Will. Yeah, comedy adjacent (laughs) at the very least. Yes. I, I mean, of course you work in comedy, and I think this is the broader definition of what, comedy is now because when Australian comedy was such a small industry, I think there were such strict parameters around how you could identify yourself as a comedian. And you had to have like done the Melbourne Comedy Festival. You had to blah, 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 or whatever these dumb arbitrary markers might have been. I think, I hope, there is no such thing as that. Of course, you work in comedy and around comedy and you're part of the comedy community. But of course, yes, you have a broader view and scope than that as well. Yeah, I mean, I have done those things. Yeah. I, I I did do all the, the comedy festivals, uh, but I, but yeah, I, I'm not a stand up. I do occasionally do it, but it's not. I think for people like you and people who do it as, you know, it's such a uh, it is earned, you know, and I haven't earned it, and I, I don't. I, I don't. I also think the gatekeeping of it is annoying, but I also don't want to come around and start throwing around things that I. When I see people who do stand up, and it's a life choice that I. Um, I couldn't make it, it. It's such a big uh, commitment and such a big sacrifice of other parts of your life. But oh. I do think that. Uh, <laughs> sorry, so well, true. That is no. I mean, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, often I say to other people, I say, if you can do something else, I have two bits of advice when it comes to stand up. If you've ever wanted to try it, try it. It's like mm-hmm. skydiving. You don't have to go a second time if you don't <laughs> like it, right? Yeah. Like, it's not compulsory if you do it once, you then have to like ruin the rest of your life by dedicating yourself to being a stand-up <laughs> comedian. And the other one is, if you have a choice to do anything but it, take that choice. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of those things that you should only do if you are compelled to do it. Because, yes, the sacrifices you make on every level yeah, are probably not worth it otherwise. Totally, yeah. And uh, and so, yes, that's why I, I am always a little bit um, sheepish about um, calling myself a comedian. Although I had a child uh, about six months ago. Uh, we had a daughter. And um, on her birth certificate, you have to put down a profession. Oh, so you have to put down mum's profession, dad's profession, and it always sends me into an existential crisis, just like your question has. And so you're like, "What are you right on this thing?" Like, I can't like broadcast. I can't believe that's even still a thing. That's so old-fashioned that totally. you have to on a child's. But for what reason? 
What, just so know. they know what your job was at the time you decided to bring another life onto the planet? Is that what it is? I think it's so that they know if they need to send docs around. Yeah. Like, if you're, like, comedian, they're like, we should check up on this child <laughs> every six months. Dreamer. Okay, guys, <laughs> yeah. we're going to have to go home with this one. Uh, but if you go back generations, they don't even mm. bother putting the, the partners. It's just just mums. Mm. Oh no, wait, it's the other way around. Anyway, whatever. Um, I had to, so I wrote yes. comedian. I put comedian on it mostly because I did think it would be pretty funny. Um, I was like, <laughs> I just thought there would come a time in my daughter's life where she would yeah. look at her own birth certificate <laughs> and see my name and see comedian and just like shake her head. So it was my first dad joke, and it was yeah. just on the day of her birth. That's good. That's good quality early material. I yeah. think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned radio, and I'm talking to you today from uh, the radio studios. I can recognise it. Uh, the ABC, the Australian mm-hmm. Broadcasting Corporation, in particular the Youth Network, Triple J. Oh, you even an ABC branded mug. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, thank a rainbow you. mug. A rainbow Bloody mug. public broadcaster <laughs> wasting taxpayers' money on this sort of propaganda. I oh, know. I made this myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I uh, I am here in one of the dankiest studios at Triple J, um, but, you know, it's it still works. I'm speaking to you, though, the reason I mentioned Triple J is I'm speaking to you less than 24 hours after it was publicly announced that you would be leaving your mm. uh, job at Triple J, which, firstly, I wanted to say congratulations. Like, oh, thank you. Yeah, both the show before with Veronica and the work that you've done with Michael, I think have both been really fantastic on Triple oh, J. I think you've been thanks, yeah, great contributors to the station and the broader you know community that you facilitate through that show and I want to congratulate you on that. But also, one of the things I'm super passionate about, as I think we've spoken about previously, is that I think it is the responsibility of Triple J radio hosts that the moment you really realise you have the best job in the world it is time for you to then move on from that best job of the world and hand it over to somebody else to have that opportunity. And it's hard to do because it is such a great job. And I know, you know, 20 years now since Adam and I finished our show, but I still think about it a lot. Even just seeing the studio there, it reminds me of so many good times. But I think it's so important the way to honour the opportunity you've been given to that station is to move on and let somebody else have that opportunity. So I want—I said it to Michael yesterday in a text and I, I wanted to say it to your face today. Like the biggest thing of all is I say congratulations that you've decided to leave because I think it's really, really important thing to do. Talk to me about – can you talk to me a little bit about, about all totally. that now? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I've been doing it for a while. Like I, I have always worried about overstaying my welcome because I think when – I felt the same way, and and to be honest, I've always felt a bit guilty about staying as long as I have, um, because I, when Veronica and I started, we had a three year plan. It was like three years, and we're out. Like that's that's how we feel. And to be honest, I think by the time we got to that third year, we just felt like we were hitting our straps. We were like, oh, we're, and we love radio. Like, Veronica had worked, um, like we went to high school together, so we've known each other for a long, long time. Um, but she was a radio like aficionado and I went to like film school. I was trying a lot of other different things that were all sort of comedy adjacent, but radio wasn't really my, my thing. It would have been, I just didn't know that you could do it. Like I would, I listened to you. I listened to so many people growing up. And if I'd have known that it was a job I could get, it would have been my dream since I was 12, but it was kind of like, you don't even think that it's possible. You know, like you grew up in, you know, regional Victoria. So did I. You're on a school bus on like the Great Ocean Road as a teenager listening to Adam and Will or American Rosso or any of these people. And you don't think to yourself, 
oh, I reckon I'll do that someday. Like it's an insane thing to think from that Mate, school. I up. was listening to Steve Mummery on uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's 1242.3TR, Sound of Gippsland in the Valley, <laughs> where you could ring in and win uh, $12.42 as the prize. <laughs> so, and that bought you a house. And even I didn't think I could aspire to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fully. Yeah. And then it, it, once the gloss, you know, you wish you could tell people, you're like, hey, it's, it's way more doable than you think. Mm. Like it's not easy. And it's not. I don't think anyone can do it, or any. But I just think it is more achievable than than certainly I thought. Uh, but anyway, yeah, we we got the job, and we thought we'd do it for three years, and then we. I felt like I was just getting okay at radio, and I just was like, we had all these ideas, and we're also just figuring out how to work at the ABC. Working at the ABC is a, a takes a certain kind of brain, and you have to, particularly if you want to try to do big things like big video shoots or. It, it take you have to really learn to plan a long time in advance, give everyone a lot of notice, and um, so we thought when we thought sorry when we started when we started we thought we could just have this idea and then next week we do it, and you go and pitch it to the ABC and they're like, absolutely not. Maybe we could do this in twelve months, and you're like, oh fuck me, really? So we actually by the time we got to three years, we yeah. had this like board full of ideas that were just like. We hadn't even touched them, you know? We're like, oh. And it felt crazy, but we just kept going and going and going, and we just never got through those ideas. Um, and then when Veronica left, she um, she took a year off, had a baby. I did the show for a year with Jen Fricker, which was also really great. And then Veronica came back, and she really wanted to have the baby and come back to work. I think that was not only because she loved the job, but I think she felt like it was a, a good thing to, to do and to see people see her do, to have people see her do. So um, that was that was important and she loved that and, and I could work with Veronica every day of my life for the rest of my life. I love her. Uh, but when she left, I quit as well. So we, we both quit at the end of 2019 and uh, they were like, you know, sorry to see you go, but we understand. You've done it for five years. Like, you know, thank you and, and goodbye. And we'd only told our boss and that would have been in – maybe August or something. And in the next three months, everyone quit. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone, like literally everyone from 6am to 6pm quit. The whole station. (laughs) And it wasn't like, I know there was a lot of press at the time of like, it's a revolution or like, what's going on? And it was, it was literally just coincidence. Like it was just time. If you think about all the people like Linda Mariano, who you know, and, um, you know, all of these, like Ben and Liam were on, Jen Fricker was doing it, me and Veronica were doing it, uh, Tom Tilly was doing Hack at the time, and everyone was just getting on. Everyone was just in, you know, getting to an age where, they, apart from Ben and Liam, who were like 12, but were just, they had a new job and they wanted to go and... Um, so it was just a coincidence. So they, then they, came- they, they had a job, and I think this is part of the appeal of uh, – so uh, Liam, Liam and Jen both uh, either coming up very soon on this podcast or have just <laughs> recently been on this podcast. Or- Liam has just been, I Liam's I just been. Jen's yeah. already recorded. Like uh, Tom's been on the show before. So people can hear their mm. own stories, and they will know from hearing those stories that what you're saying is absolutely the case. But the one thing that I, th- I really think that – like I didn't talk to Liam about, but I think that – is probably very true is what you said originally they are ben and liam in particular they love coming up with an idea and being able to execute something being able to go we've got this idea tomorrow we're going to go out and do this thing or like you know this thing that's in the news we're going to capture this moment and try to be part of it and 
commercial radio, that is the the big upside of commercial radio. There is some downsides of commercial radio, but the upside <laughs> is that capacity to have why, an idea. Why don't you name them, Will? <laughs> well, I, I, can, I can name the upsides and the downsides very, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, the upside is money and your mm. capacity to actually execute ideas really quickly. The downside is like pretty much everything else. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like on some on good days, the first thing balances out much better than the second thing. You can yeah. put up with the rubbish because of the your capacity to do the first thing. Mm. And um, so, anyway, the point being that Triple J should always have these exoduses. And funnily enough, even the fact that you've mentioned this, and we're about to talk about you know your second exit, you know, based <laughs> on this, there's even. There's a few people going again at the moment, and again, yeah. all the newspaper coverage around it is Triple J Exodus. Is it in crisis? You're like, no, this is natural. Yeah. It should regenerate every few years, and if it's not, that should be the problem. Totally, totally. And and I was so aware of it because I, by the time 2019 rolled around, you know, I was into my 30s, and I was like, man, I got like, I've already stayed longer than I thought I would. Veronica's leaving. It's such a good natural out. Like, I can feel this. We've had a great show. Get out on top. And but then literally everybody quit, yeah. and Triple J came back, and they were like, they could see I was the only one that still felt yeah. like he had some show to give. Like yeah. I, I still loved it, and I, if Veronica had have wanted to stay, I might have. Mm. But I, and so they, they basically said, P- pick anyone you like, and and just give it a go for like we'll give you a three month contract. Just try it. If you like it, stay. If you don't, leave. And it was a risk because, you know, like if it had gone really badly, it would have soured the end of the the run. But I felt pretty confident about doing it with Hingers because I'd known him for a long time. He was a regular guest on our show. And like Veronica, he's one of the hardest workers I've ever met. Like just a just a guy who shows up every – like you know what radio is like. You, you don't have a day off. You don't necessarily do a, the best show every day, but every day you have the same amount of time to fill. It's a very Sisyphean task. Like you, you, you roll the ball up the hill, you get to the top of the hill, the ball rolls down, you come in the next day, you roll the ball up the hill again. And that's your life. And it's great. I don't mean it doesn't – like it's not as bleak as it sounds, but there are days where you're like, this fucking ball, man. Like I've had enough of this fucking ball. Um, How do you think that that affects you? So I've been having this conversation recently with uh, – uh, a friend of mine that some people might have heard of, David William Hughes, mm, and uh, sure. as he's commonly known, I believe, yeah, yeah, to yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Sir David William Sir Hughes Sir David the William third. Hughes. <laughs> so, <laughs> Warnable's very own Sir David William Hughes. And we were talking about, because Hughes, he obviously made a lot of headlines for trending on Twitter all the time during the uh, pandemic and with some of his you know, criticisms of the Dan Andrews government. And he became for... You know, people in like probably who, whose political opinions align more to my political opinions. The question I get asked so often is like, you know, how are you and Husey friends? Like, what do you talk <laughs> about? And I'm like, oh no, Husey's like a really mostly progressive, interesting guy. Like, you know, and just because we disagree on a few things, like, doesn't mean I can't be friends with somebody. But mm. we talk a lot. I, I have talked to him so many times about because I'm off all socials now. It's the mm. basis of my entire personality. It turns out but, I'm envious. But I was talking to Husey about. I said, "Why did you feel like you needed to say something?" Mm. And mm. and one of the things that we got to was it was that radio brain, which is that the idea that you need to 
have 10 opinions a day or have 10 interesting things happen to you in a day that you can have a take on or an angle on or a story about. And 100%. the truth of it is, in real life, like, yeah. you know, I, it, I do like a regular radio segment on a, on, on, a, on a mate show every second week. And I feel yeah. like they like two stories, like two good stories to bring in. Yeah. And I reckon that's about the right amount of time to come up with two good yeah, every week. To, and yeah. I'm, I'm, some weeks I'm still like, I reckon one of these stories is good and one's just fine. <laughs> I've had like two full weeks to come up with this. So I, I guess the question I'm asking you rather mm. than specifically talking about that is just do you have a sense of how that like daily con- you know, going to the content minds and having to fill that space every day kind of affects you? Yeah, I... I mean, to be honest, I'm so interested to know what's going to happen to me because uh, I've, I've got about a month left on radio. And then after that, I'm, I've got two podcasts that I'll be doing. And for a few months, that's it. Um, um, well, obviously, I'll be also looking after a six-month-old child. But, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> it's got to raise itself. I warned him my dad was a comedian. I've got a podcast to make. It's on the birth certificate, honey. <laughs> Papa's got pods. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm really interested to know what's going to happen with my brain because I do think that it, it can take up more of your brain than it should. And for me as well, like I've got a lot of um, a lot of like anxious tendencies. I'm a pretty tightly wound person pretty um i have a pretty high standards which uh, if you listen to the radio show might be hard to imagine but i uh <laughs> i have pretty brutal on myself about um you know what makes a good day of radio or a good segment and i'm pretty easy to beat myself up so i do wonder if when it's gone i will be happier or whether i'll uh, have a giant void and like relevance deprivation syndrome i'm curious to know but i um i think to be honest, I think it's a great muscle to, to develop. Mm. Like I think I remember talking to um, Andrew Denton, who I know you uh, have a you know long relationship with as well, mm-hmm. and he's and he said if you look at people who do a lot of radio, the thing that they do straight out of radio is often the best work of their life because they are so fit in the brain for ideas. You have you can have more ideas in a day of radio than you can have in a year of television. Like you just television is a slower beast or or whatever it is that you do you just even stand up you know it's like you know you 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 i don't know you just you're not doing the to- the the hours that you do on radio uh, not saying that's harder or easier or whatever i'm just it's just different well, it's a different it, muscle and it, it it's absolutely about and this is why sometimes the opposite can be true with people who are doing stand up while they're doing radio Anyway, I'm not going to say people. I'm going to say myself. Sure. I'm going to say me. You know, yeah. you, I'll use me as this example. And it's funny because every time somebody says I'm leaving radio to concentrate on my stand-up, everyone thinks that's like a, it's a nice way of saying I've been fired, but they've given me the dignity of saying this publicly. Yeah. But it's, it's the not- I'm going to spend more time with my family of <laughs> yeah. comedy. Yeah, correct. But for me, the truth is that because radio, a lot of it is surface-level comedy, and I don't mm. mean that in a dismissive way. No. It needs to be something that someone can understand if they're half listening, they're in the car, they came in halfway through the conversation. Mm. Whereas in stand-up, people don't come in halfway through one of my routines. Like, <laughs> So if you only take them to that base level, the radio level, then yeah. it's not where the really good stand-up comes from. The really good stand-up comes from having that idea and thinking about it for a month or, or like going deeper instead of going, here's all these things today. And so I agree with what Andrew's saying about the fitness, but I also think that it is 
a different muscle. It's like a sprinter yes. thinking that they can suddenly run a marathon <laughs> because they train for sprinting every day. It's totally. not actually still the same thing. I do think you're right. Like I, um, the idea of broadcasting as a, you know, as opposed to even something like this where, um, you know, you, you, it just goes out to a big audience, but everyone knows what they're in for and they're choosing to listen and they're losing, listening specifically. You do have, you do get quite good at, um, yeah, learning how to tailor an idea to grab the most amount of people in the shortest amount of time. And I am really looking forward to being able to, um, you know, sink my teeth into something a little, a little, um, a, a little different, I guess. But I also have just really enjoyed, I have enjoyed the pace of radio. And I think it kept me on a line where, you know, I, I found performing, I find performing very stressful. It gives me a lot of like, I have like a, a you know, pretty, um, like deep clinical anxiety and performing has given me like I can get really sick. Um, it, it really gives me all the sweats and the, the ever, like the fast paced heart rate. And I can't think my brain goes into a whole like tears sometimes. And just knowing that you have a show at 3 PM every day was quite good for me. It made sure that I, I knew exactly when I, when I had to work, what my energy had to be. I knew exactly what my, goal was every day and it did make me i think just a better a better i don't know performer a better broadcaster just better at the the whole world i guess better at this game so you talk about the idea of you know having high standards and mm. like you know you've obviously mentioned the anxiety as well like talk to me about because look that's Something I think that you need to obviously have high standards for what it is that you do to be successful at things. But when it becomes, you know, crippling, that idea of trying to reach those high standards, because the one thing that I've learned and I wish that I'd been able to go back and tell myself earlier in my life is that you, you're actually pretty rubbish. And even the best <laughs> you'll ever do will be like, you, if you're looking for it to be perfect or be really, really good, sometimes you've just got to get used to the idea as like, I tried my best and this is what happened and I can move on from that. And it feels like something that's something that you've obviously thought about and, and wrestled with a little as an idea. So talk to me about that idea of, you know, high standards versus that you know, what you, cause you said it in a sentence, you were like, I have high standards. It might not be apparent to people who listen to the radio show. And within that one sentence, there was just so much going on that I recognized, <laughs> you know, and so many things that I wanted to unpick. So can we just sit with that idea for a little bit longer and flesh it out a bit? Sure. It actually does probably bring me to, um, the question that you often ask, which is, what is your life philosophy? Oh, great. Perfect. Look yeah. at you with your radio skills, bringing it around to the point of the show. Now, Will, it'd be actually good if you actually kind of put the conceit right up the top, didn't bury it right in the middle whenever it absolutely came out. But yes, no, please. Uh, well, because I, I was trying to think about it because I, I know that the question, knew the question was coming and I don't, I don't have a, I wasn't, sometimes when I hear people say like, my parents always told me you know, try your hardest or people have like a thing that their parents told them about a life philosophy. I'm like, that is not relatable to me. My parents were never like, sit down on my knees and I'm going to tell you a story about the world <laughs> and how to conquer it or whatever. Like they just raised their kids. Um, so, but I had a moment a few years ago where I was, I was having horrible panic attacks. I was getting very little joy from the work I was doing, even though I knew on the surface of it, it was it was on paper joyful. I was hanging out with my best friend. I was doing the greatest job in the world that I'd always like 
dreamed of, yada, yada. I had the, you know, friends and all these things, but I was, I was pretty miserable all the time. And I, it really did come down to the fact that I just never hit my own standards. I never, there was at no point did I ever look back at anything that I ever did and went, that was good enough. Not, not a single day in, in a couple of years, you know, and that is just, that is not a nice way to live. And I had a, a New Year's resolution one, one, I was just, I was at New Year's, I was partying with a bunch of friends and I just had this like revelation. I was like, for the next year, I'm just going to set my standard at 70%. And if I can hit 70, I'm going to call that a win. And if I get under 70, like genuinely pick up your game. But if you get anywhere between 70 and 100, like pay yourself on the back and be happy and move on. And it genuinely <laughs> changed my life. Like it, um, it made me, it took a bit of time to settle in and it still hasn't settled in. I still sometimes have to really jam it into my brain, but I'll feel myself get off air and I'll be like, ah, fuck, I fucked this up. I fucked this up. And things that no one would notice, like no one in the world would notice. It would be tiny little like paneling things that it, like I was a second out on the news or like nothing, you know, I, I slightly like mumbled a set a word and screwed up a joke, whatever, you know, I would get off. And I'm like, that's fine, man. You got between 70 and a hundred. Let's go home happy. Like, and it, it really, I think because when people are like, you got to relax or you got to, you got to be happy with yourself, whatever. It's too airy fairy. I needed a number. Yeah. <laughs> you, you just needed a statistical measurement of like lower your standards. Like, yeah. You know, Bradman batted 100, but for everybody else, that's an unrealistic standard, right? Yes. If you average yeah. between 50 and 60 in test match cricket, you are regarded as one of the best cricketers of all time. Like, yeah. So yeah. The, the 100 is the outlier. That's the yeah. statistical <laughs> anomaly. Like, on a, it doesn't mean on a day you won't make 100 as a cricketer, yeah. right? Yeah. You'll have those days. But if you knock around a good 70, that's, that's, a, that's a success. That's massive. And the other thing is that I, I kind of knew but – hoped it would happen and and have found that it has is that if you are less angry at yourself you're so much better at the job <laughs> like you're so much better at bringing joy if when your job is a you're a joy merchant ideally if your job is that and you are experiencing very little joy yourself it's very it's it's so effortful to do it uh whereas when you are patting yourself on the back and going hey pretty good job buddy it's so much easier to come in the next day and go, all right, what's on? Let's roll this rock up a hill today. Oh, man, what you've said, I, I really need to have this conversation today because I've had a week where – like, I think that you and I have a lot in common when it comes to this. I think this is, you know, particularly early on in my life, I was so angry, at, like so driven by the idea that I needed to be good. And mm. I think a lot of it was imposter syndrome, you know, of this course. <laughs> idea of I don't belong here, I'm a kid from a dairy farm, like we didn't even have Triple Day when I was growing up. How did I find myself here? I've got to prove to – not only do I have to, you know, prove that I belong here, but I have to prove that I'm like the best person who can be here and I'm going to hold myself mm. to unreasonable standards. Oh, man. And can I just say, fuck you for setting a, a fucking unreasonable standard for the rest of us. You think, like, part of this self-loathing isn't your fault? I'm here to fucking confront you, Anderson. <laughs> fuck me. 
Sorry, continue. <laughs> I mean, look, I I laugh because I know there is. I've heard that enough from other people to know there's an element of truth <laughs> yeah. to what you're saying. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm Please. sorry if my career path has become a burden to others to follow after me. I I was hoping uh, I was opening doors, not no. creating an unrealistic standard. No, no, no. Honestly, it, um, it, it, it is it is fun. It, for the first like three to six months of in the job when people are like bring back Adam and Will you're like they did breakfast this is drive you fuckers um, they're you old know. men now yeah like, they're, they're, Adam's kids are old enough to host shows Fully. on Triple J that's right I've, Adam has like been had said like hey can you um, my daughter really wants to meet you she's yeah. and I'm like that blows my mind but anyway yeah anyway uh, so uh, continue I, I, so what I was going to say to you was I recognise a lot of this setting yourself unrealistic standards and then getting so angry at yourself when you can't reach something that was unrealistic to be reaching in the first place. No one in the history of radio, Hamish and Andy didn't do like a hundred out of a hundred shows every day. And like uh, Martin Malloy didn't do hundred out of a hundred shows every day. It's unrealistic. Mm. Mm. And they like, they, they're some of the all time great people in the history of late broadcasting in Australia. They didn't do it. No one does yeah. it. No. And, and yet you're setting yourself this standard that is impossible to achieve and then beating yourself up when you don't achieve something that is impossible to achieve. So I love this idea of 70. Like I've mm. never heard it put like that, but to my brain, that yeah. re- that really makes a lot of sense. And I had one of those weeks this week. Sometimes right. they just sneak up on you because yeah. I made a decision a few years ago, which was the one that you've just said, which is this isn't helping you be better. Like – if this was helping you be better, if the reason you were successful was because of all this anxiety you were putting on it or like, you know, mm. the, the, but it, it isn't. It's getting in the way of it. You would be yeah. better if you were more relaxed. You would be better if you were coming into this, looking forward to it and enjoying it. And I had a week this week where I literally forgot that. And it was all because, yeah, the thing was a 70. The thing was mm. probably an 80. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's the thing. But if I you just set wanted 70, it to be a 90 or a 95, and so I was angry at myself. Yeah. If you set 70, mm. you so often jump over it. Yeah. You're almost never at 70 <laughs> if you set 70. Right? Yeah. You're almost always the over best. it. Yeah. I'm overachieving now. <laughs> yeah. All I had to do was lower my expectations. <laughs> yeah. And then it, and, but it, that's the thing is like, for me, again, like, lower your expectations uh-huh. is impossible. Yeah. Uh, it was too, it was, you needed like, a number. I needed a number. And 80 would have probably kept me in a mm. – it would have probably kept my anxiety yeah, a bit high. Much. 60, I would have been like, you're getting lazy. Mm. You're going to you're gonna lose your – you know, you're going to – whatever. I mean, everyone always worries about becoming shit. Um, I'm like, 70? You know what? If you if you can hit 70 as an average across your life, mm. that's I think a you'll good, be all right. That's a good average. Yeah, I'll be happy with that. Oh, my God. This is genius, man. I'm glad this <laughs> oh, is a really – I love the number. Yeah, the number because, <laughs> like you said, everyone can talk about that idea of like lowering your expectations yeah. or not putting as much pressure on yourself or whatever. But just giving it a really good identified number, that, <laughs> even in your head, you're like, "Yep, seventy. That's well over a pass. Yep, like well over. Like, oh yeah, this isn't scraping through. This that's is a distinction. Like a good solid score, and that's kind of my base. All yeah. I'm aiming for is seventy. Yeah, and on a lot of days, I'm going to do better than seventy. I reckon. And if I set, yeah, the, the if I. I think it's because I don't know yeah. if you had this when you were, you know, uh, well, I was about to say when you were anxious. <laughs> you know, you seem more you good know, now. So yeah, two, two days ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you meet someone who uh-huh. isn't, it is, I've never been more envious of people who, who appear relaxed. 
particularly in the world of comedy and entertainment, people who are just like it, you, they really feel like they just uh, they just have it naturally. They just sort of fall from success to success, and you just like that. It's it stresses me out how much they don't prepare. <laughs> But the the fact that they just don't need to seems like the greatest gift you could ever have in life, and um and my solution to that was like well you just got to work harder, <laughs> and and uh, I realised that it isn't the sol- the solution to being relaxed is not like tense your whole body up, clench your jaw and knuckle through the world of the horrible world of comedy. It's like no man like this is supposed to be fun. This has to be fun for. The more fun it is for you, the more fun it will be for anyone watching. Uh, so I love this. I love all this. But okay. also what it reminds me of is the fact that, like, I get all this and I understand mm. what you're saying. And yet, the, just this week, literally mm. within the last 48 hours, I had one of those things that almost entirely, I mean, there were some external factors, but like the, at the heart of it, it is exactly what you're talking about. So how often does it still manage to pop through? Because like saying something like this and readjusting it is one thing, but living it as a daily principle, like how how successful is this as a philosophy or do you still have those days where suddenly the old thing just pops its head up unexpectedly? Um, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but I have like a, I have a, I have a sentence for it now when I can when I can feel it coming. Like even for, with this, um, you know, we announced that we were leaving yesterday and it's been something we've been thinking about for a long time. And <laughs> I remember I was so tense. I was just walking along with Hingers. We were getting a coffee and I was, I could just feel my jaw clenching. I could feel myself, myself starting to sweat. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And I, and I was like, oh, I, I was like, I want to do the best farewell of all time. Mm. I could just feel that in the back of my brain. I was like, I was going through every farewell that I could remember that anyone had ever done. And I was thinking to myself, how do we do a better one? And I just remember, and I, and I thought to myself, that is the stupidest thing to think. <laughs> right. That is not the way to think about this at all. Like that is, that, first of all, what does that even mean? Yeah. What does that mean? I what can't even that, remember. No. Like, what does it mean? It means it's an insane Like, I mean, thing unless you're think. like The Sopranos and people yes. are going to debate it forever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. That's like, yeah, that's right. We'll start, d- don't stop believing, da, 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 and we'll just piss everyone off. No, it's like, like, it was such a crazy thing to think, but I think maybe yeah. two years ago, I had those thoughts all the time, unchecked, just flying around my brain. And, um, and, and then I would try to solve that problem somehow, and- and then would be furious at myself when I didn't. So it was, and I said it to Hingers. I was like, "Hey, I just need to let you know, I'm having a stupid thought right now. It is um, that we need to do the perfect farewell." He's like, "Well, that's insane." I'm like, "Thank you, I agree. Thank you. <laughs> Let's move on." Uh, so, yeah, I, it happens all the time, and it it affects my my whole life and body and 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 everything. So, um, yeah, I it the the seventy percent thing really helps. Net, but and I'm also better at catching it now. Now that I'm aware of it, now that I know that pattern and that cycle, and I can feel it coming, I can talk myself down from. Um, and also, I think getting a bit older as well. You like, I think uh, when you are, <laughs> particularly like if you're any in anywhere in entertainment, and maybe this is any job at all. The when you're in your twenties, the the sky is genuinely the limit. Like if you're in entertainment, I think this is about actors a lot. I used to tell people never date an actor before they're thirty. Um, because 
That, that, see, that's a great piece of philosophy advice as well that yeah. I've never heard. I like it. And the theory was the gap between the most successful actor and the least successful actor in the world is so gargantuan that, and when they're in their 20s, all of those are possibilities. Um, and I should I should preface this by saying I don't necessarily go all in on this, but we'll just tease it out. No, it's <laughs> fun. We're having a chat. Like, yeah. This isn't for the public record. It's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, good. If you're an actor, I'm sure people should date you. But By the way, uh, uh, you know, I'm here for every one of these podcasts and yeah. you're already a 70 based on what you've brought to the table <laughs> oh, in the you. first 35 minutes. You can literally – it would be very hard for you to fuck this up from here on. Oh, I feel like you've done okay. very well. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I, I, I needed that. Thank you. Yeah. Get the <laughs> uh I um my theory was that if if you if you date someone in like with that potential for for massive success or crippling failure which is all possible particularly in the in any entertainment world there are two options one is that they get super successful at some point and break up with you or the other one is they um uh, never get anywhere and resent you for some reason that was my theory again I don't think it applies to all people at all times but <clears throat> I do think that in when I was in my like early twenties, the the potential that I had for my career was uh, in my brain, not not the actual skill I had, but just in my brain was like limitless, you know. Uh, and it was so nothing I did was ever good. And like until I could have been, I could have been standing on stage getting an Emmy for greatest comedian of all time, and I would have been like, well, it's not the Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize. Like I. I would have that. That was the kind of standard I had for myself. It was uh-huh. just, it was, it was really crippling. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have, to, to have pulled that back. But I do think part of it is just age and and kind of going. Oh well, this job I have now, which is not, you know, I'm not going to win an Emmy for greatest comedian of all time for doing a radio show. But I that isn't actually. I've sort of reset. That that actually isn't the the point of anything. Like I'm, the, not, I, I'm I, and even like it's probably the right time to tell you now. I'm not sure they have an Emmy for greatest radio show of all time. You're so. fucking kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> You're fucking kidding. Well, I wish someone had told me eight years ago. Will, <laughs> if they did, they would have given it to fucking Adam and Will. I'm trying to think about, you know, it was a long time ago when I finished school and I think in a way there was part of me that the only aspiration I had was I didn't want to be a farmer. I knew that that mm-hmm. was too hard work for me and, uh, you know, that I wanted to do something else. But if I'm being realistic, I guess there was also another part of my brain. You don't set out on the journey that I've set out on if if there isn't part of your brain that thinks that you can do that. Like even – so where did that come from for you? Tell us a little bit about – how, like, you know, how do you, where do you grow up? Where do you, like, go to school with Veronica? Like, how does that all happen? And, you know, you know, you coming out of, I want to take back to how you got to be this person who thought that anything was possible in the world. Well, yeah. I So I went to school in Geelong. I grew up uh, down the surf coast, uh, a place called Point Addis, which most people wouldn't have heard of, but it's sort of near Bells Beach. 
if people are in the area, Point at us is People most- know Bells Beach famously from the end of Point Break wasn't <laughs> Bells Beach. <laughs> That's right. It actually, I mean, it, it was definitely Hawaii, but... Um, yeah, but they said it was Bells Beach. <laughs> they said it was Bells Beach. They had that guy from Water Rats on there. Uh, it was, Peter it was, Phelps, right? Peter Phelps, that's right. We'll get him when he comes back in. Yes, um, great stuff. No, what did he say? Death on a stick out there, mate. Death on a stick out there. <laughs> that's, that's right. right. Uh, that classic Australian saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I grew up uh, in the, the yeah. final scenes of Point Break. Yeah. Uh, but also more famously, Point Addis, um is uh, the area's big nude beach. Oh, um, so that was so. I grew okay. up on like a dirt road, mm. um, you know, no, no other houses walkable. It was sort of pretty kind of kind of the middle of nowhere. I mean, not the middle of nowhere. It was you know fifteen minutes to talk in in the car, but nothing. Um, it was pretty. We were on the edge of a national park. It was pretty quiet. Um, and so yeah, I went to school in Geelong, and Veronica and I were like friends, but she was a year above me, so we weren't. You know, a year is a lifetime at high school. So we were, we we had some crossover friends, but we didn't hang out that much. Um, and I think at that point, I didn't really. I don't know how. You know, at that, I, I, maybe it's different now, but certainly for me, that was like in the early two thousands, and I there was no one at school being like, you can go into entertainment. Like, if you were pretty good at school, and I was pretty good at school. They, they think you should be a lawyer. So I applied to law school and got in, and my literature teacher called my parents up and said, "Don't don't let him go to don't let him go to law school." <laughs> and it was like he he needs to not do that. He will hate it. He needs to do something to do with words. Really was her thing, um, and uh, so I. I changed and then I went to media. I was like, I got into media law. I was like, maybe that's a little bit. And then I was like, oh, fuck it. Just do go to media. Like, mm. and it felt like It'd be a great real... to do all the contracts for the people that <laughs> <laughs> like, I'd actually prefer to be myself. It's crazy <laughs> that I thought that was the bridging point. Like, uh, uh, yeah. You know what would be really great? <laughs> Going into the most boring part <laughs> of the entertainment industry. I know, but. In my mind, I was like, "It'll get me in the door, you know. It'll get me. Yeah. It'll get me in the game." Yeah. Uh, and because I, I hadn't, I hadn't never done any performance or like other than like school. Oh, plays. so nothing had like. Oh, yeah. So, did, but you, were you doing school plays, public speaking, any of those sort of things? Yes, that was the thing. Is I would do like I, I would do. De- I'd watch the great debates on ABC, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, fuck yeah." That debating looks sick. Mm. So I would I joined the debating team and just wrote them like great debates. So wrote yeah. them as comedy, um, and very quickly lost a lot of debates and quit the debating team. Uh, and then I would join. I would do sports. I did a lot of sport. And then the main thing was I would do like the big speech at the end of the year, and that was like my time to shine. But no one ever said, "Wasn't he a great sportsman?" But they always people would go, "Geez, he did a great speech at the end of the year." <laughs> that was my thing. I did everyone's eighteenth speeches. That was like, so that was, I was just trying to get a taste. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's good. That's like proper open mic. <laughs> yeah. Right? Warm you, crowd though. Warm yeah, crowd. Yeah, but that's good. You know yeah. everyone. 
Yeah. That's better than dragging your family and friends along to like an open mic night. Like, you yeah. might, it's like, it's great. Everyone knows Uncle Larry and what he did. Like, <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. good material. It's relatable. It's true. Yeah, that's true. So, and then I, I went to uni, I started doing media and I actually, I did six months of radio and was like, ah, not for me and quit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, was but, that because you were what you thought uh, television or film or something was more compelling to you? Yeah, I was pretty pretentious. Mm. Well, okay. I was pretty, I was I mean, pretty pretentious. Yeah, that didn't entirely surprise me. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I respect that. I respect your honesty. I know what I am. Uh, I, <laughs> which is, and I, I hadn't earned yeah. it, right? Like I, I you know, no, of course I, not. I, I was not a, mm. I was not a worldly. You know, twenty-year-old. I was not a wise twenty-year-old. I, I didn't have a particularly great knowledge of film or music or literature, but I did have some very thick black glasses, <laughs> and I smoked rolled-up cigarettes, and I was a bit of a cunt. <laughs> yep, perfect. Yeah, can absolutely so, can absolutely say all of this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> You can imagine. Uh, I, can you imagine some, me doing some firm opinions about things that oh, you yeah. absolutely didn't have the right to have opinions about? Oh, I imagine. Is this something you love? Here's why it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was just you know, I, I, my, I go inside myself yeah. sometimes when I think about myself at that age, and I apologise to anyone who knew me. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> That's young people are meant to like. You're trying on personalities. It's, oh, yeah. You know, often I think of young people, you define yourself so much when you're young by what you don't like, and that is absolutely fine. You know, mm. part of your personality can be I love this, I hate this. That's you trying to work out who you are. But eventually you've got to stop defining yourself against the world and understand who you are in relation to the world. And it's as long as you make that switch at some time, I don't think it's – yeah, I think it's good that people try on different styles and personalities and, you know, like they – and, you know, they make you who you are and it's mm. like I think – but I love picturing it as well, I will say. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I can man. totally see it. So yeah. how does like the world of media come into your actual life? Like how do you actually start working in the media? Uh, so, yeah, my, my first job was as, uh, I used to work as like a runner on film sets and then, uh, and then as a driver – mostly on ads and things like that. And then I was working, I finished uni, I went to VCA uh, in Melbourne, Did went to film school for a year there, and I had finished all of that and I was just working uh, hospitality. Uh, I was actually working at the bar at Victorian Parliament House, oh, okay. which was a weird job. Um, uh, I had to sign an NDA, so we, we just can't talk about all of the people who fucked each other, Will. Um, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I worked at Parliament House in Canberra and I oh, never really? signed an oh, NDA, so I definitely can talk <laughs> about all the people who fucked each other. Yeah, I don't think you can make a journalist sign an NDA. <laughs> I mean, it'd be, it'd be a baller move. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to tell you everything, but you yeah. do have to sign this NDA. <laughs> yeah. That's how I, why I had to leave journalism. I signed an NDA. <laughs> Got to a point, I, I just couldn't talk about anything. I know what happened to Harold Holt, but I cannot tell you. <laughs> just co- cough if it was a sub. <laughs> I fucking knew it. Um, yeah, so I was working, yeah, I was working in a bar at, at Victorian Parliament House and just I'd, I'd started doing stand-up. I did... Um, 
I did raw comedy and then was doing a little bit of stand-up. And, well, I mean, man, if at, you know how <laughs> when you first start doing stand-up, you were probably different. You were probably good at it quicker than I was. But you are so – you just rip off someone. You rip oh, off yeah. someone, Greg and that's Flay, fine. Anthony Morgan, Tony Martin. Like, I yeah. mean, I could tell you all the people that I was clearly – even if I didn't even know that. Like yeah. so, some of it you kind of half know that you are and some of it you actually don't even aware until later that you're like, oh, yeah, that was the, what that put, you know, I could, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, and, and all of it is terrible because they're so good at what mm. they do for a reason and you suck at it. And, but that's fine. Mm. Everyone's going to suck when they start. But I was ripping off Ricky Gervais, which was such a tightrope, and I just don't have the, the chutzpah to carry that kind of deft, like – Oh, I can't believe he's saying it. You know what I mean? Like that's not how that's not my vibe. <laughs> really. No, but it felt like that was what you were pretending to be for a while, right? Yes. Like like you said, you know, this rolled up cigarette, like, yeah. you know, like edge lord <laughs> opinion having kind oh. of Ricky Gervais. <laughs> like, but but it's interesting, isn't it? That there, there's always there was obviously part of you that was like, Oh, this is who I need to be or pretend to be or like lean into this aspect of my personality. Whereas, mm. you know, now when I talk to you, there is such like real joy about life and the world and like these things that come from inside you that are obviously more fully expressed as part of your broader personality. Like regardless of whether there's still a part of you that is that, and I'm sure there is, right? Of course, like, yeah. It must have come from some part of you. Yes. But you, like it, it's good that you recognize that that shouldn't be your whole personality. Yeah. Well, actually, do you know what? I was – um. I was thinking I was after I'd come up with my seventy percent theory. We'll, we'll pivot back to the media Great. thing, but this I'll. Is good. Um, it's good I, to finally have a professional involved in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, there was this. There, I had heard this theory recently, which I really like, which is that basically there are no bad human qualities. Mm. There's just the wrong amount. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And I and I really and the 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 way that I heard it described to me was. You know, cowardice and bravery. You know, in our minds, cowardice bad, bravery good, right? But like realistically, if you are 100% brave, you're an idiot. Like you do stupid things, you will die too young. And if you're 100% a coward, you'll be useless and no one will like you and you'll never come through for anyone. So what you want is to be somewhere on the coward bravery spectrum. And... I that has been a nice thing for me to think about. I try to think about that a lot when I am being really angry at myself about some aspect of myself that I hate. I'm like, you don't have to delete that. You just have to turn it down. <laughs> oh, man, this is good stuff. I like that a lot. There's a friend of mine who's a doctor who has a similar saying about drugs, basically. And mm. he said that all medicine, he said all drugs are medicines or poisons. Sure. It just depends on the dosage and the yes. appropriate of the do- right you know what i mean yeah yeah and and it's such a good way to look at drugs because like you know those people who go like you know drugs bad or drugs good you're like no 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 no, no. like drugs are spectrum <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> and it it, it, it it that does have very much that parallel to what you're saying that like yes the capacity for forgiveness we think is a good thing but if you were forgiving constantly of people who did you wrong without any repercussions or whatever mm. that might be then that becomes a debilitating part of your personality. Yeah, you like you need to have some accountability as well. You need to be able to tell people that they've pissed you off. Um, as well as that can't be all your thing either. You need to be able to, if you're just constantly being like, everyone's wronged me, yada, yada, you're a nightmare. So, um, 
Anyway, and it is that thing about the seventy percent, right? Mm. You didn't say I'm not going to care about my work. Yeah, because that could be like the other thing. You know what? I'm just going to roll with it. I'm going to wing it. I'm going to have a good time regardless of how it sounds. Like yeah. that could be a, an approach, right? Yeah. But you still said my approach is 70%. Yeah. My approach is that I'm still going to set myself a standard because I think for me setting myself a standard is something that I need, something that I aspire to, something that will actually give me confidence and structure in my life is having a standard to aspire to Mm. but i'm just not going to set that standard at an unrealistic standard i'm Mm. going to ask people to like you know take their shoes off at the door so they don't (laughs) make the carpet muddy but i'm not going to say you know could you please disinfect your feet before you come into the house i've got some of those hair nets if you could put those over your feet just put this over like you're going through a factory like you're a politician visiting a factory could you please yeah just put this hazmat suit on could you do that please are you a neat freak are you are you a howard hughes type are you on the you're on the fence no, I'm not – no, because I've got, like, animals. Like, oh, I think sure, animals sure. yeah. tend to – yeah. you know, eventually you're just going to have to get over any of that. But I do like things to be – I mean, I, 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 I don't subscribe to, you know, any of Jordan Peterson's views but this. <laughs> <laughs> and this is not his view, by the way. This is yeah, ancient yeah. wisdom that Jordan Peterson repackaged for, mm. you know, modern consumption. But the idea of – Cleaning up a bit in the morning is, I think, a very good like, – that's generally – so before I did this today, I walked the dog, I did my laundry, I cleaned the house, I did the dishes. Like, I've, it's, I, it's just me here, so I just hand – But so, it's you know, I did all those things, made myself a coffee, cleaned the coffee machine, did that, and then I really do feel like I can lean into just having, like, a nice long chat with you and – yeah, so I, I think there is some wisdom in – cleaning up a bit, you know, straightening things out at the start of the day. Isn't it amazing that he, his, like, the tip of his iceberg is make your yeah, bed every morning bed. and the bottom of the iceberg is hate women. It's just like, yeah. it's <laughs> How the fuck is he getting away with that? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it starts by luring you into something that is like a non-gender conforming belief, right? Like, mm. you know, I think traditionally there was a sexism involved in not making your bed, which was that that was women's work. Like right. mum or wife was the person who made the bed. So he's actually starting with something that in a way is like take responsibility for your own things. Don't rely on anybody else to do this. You should be making your bed. Don't rely on a woman to make your bed. This is great. By yeah. the way, just follow this pyramid down to me really having some dodgy opinions about women. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I, sorry, this is, I know this podcast has a tendency to get yeah. tangential, but we're it off does. on a new one. That's okay. Which is good. Because you're in, you're in the Northern Rivers mm. and my, my partner, my girlfriend is uh, from around there as well. And, um, and I had some friends who made a documentary about cults and a lot of people's entrance into cults. There are quite a few cults around that part of the world. And a lot of them start with f- sort of out there, but fairly reasonable top of the pyramid. It's just mm-hmm. like we have a powder. If you drink this powder, it will get rid of your, it will make you help your immune system or whatever. And then you go away to the farm to see where the powder's made. And suddenly you, you're there for 10 years. Um, but actually, it's another tangent, but one of the greatest stories I heard from that documentary was there was a uh, there was a cult around Byron, and it only it only had three people. It was a woman who claimed she was Jesus and two followers. And after like five years, one of the followers left, so it was just 
the woman who thought he was Jesus, she was Jesus, and one follower. And after a few years, the leader left <laughs> and was like, what are you doing to the follower? It's like, I'm not Jesus. And imagine being the last follower of a cult and being told off for being like, for still believing in this person. But you would just convince yourself because we're human beings. If you've dedicated yourself to an idea for that long, mm. it would be worse for you to convince yourself that you'd wasted your life. <laughs> yeah. It's the doubling down principle. Yeah. That, that actually doesn't Sunk surprise cost. me at all because you see it across all of society. The amount of people who hold on to an opinion well after that opinion mm. is useful to them because they've spent so much time like you know yeah. and, and and you know like making that point or having that argument i i mean i remember it back in the university days when i decided that i was going to chuck in journalism to um you know go and try try my hand at stand up comedy there was a big part of me that was like i've spent 3 years of my life you know working mm. as a journalist like studying journalism like am i going to waste all that to go and do something else. And I can't even remember who said it to me, but it was such a great piece of advice that said, oh, or you could just waste the rest of your life on something you don't <laughs> want to do because you invested three years into it. And it was mm. that, I mean, of course. Yeah. What, what a, like, you know, if you want to do something else, you're wasting your time by not starting it immediately. And mm. so I, I love that. I, li I like that whole idea of like, like looking at the world through like this sunk cost, it makes sense to me that if you've run away to join a cult, if you believe this person is like Jesus come back to earth and then they eventually tell you that they are – because imagine the friends and family and those sort of things you've like had <laughs> oh, to yeah. give up. You've, yeah. Like you've, I'm sure that they've had to, you know, like the relationships have been dissolved over the fact that, you know, people have tried to intervene. They've said, no, 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 I believe this is Jesus come back to earth. And then when Jesus says, I'm not Jesus, in your head you'd just be like, this is a test. Yeah. This is a test. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This is the why Lord I'm is the only one me. left. This is just a test. <laughs> oh, man, that's horrific. Yes, but you're 100%. You are so right. We all do that to some degree. Um, anyway, I, I'll, I'm now... I'll yeah. pivot right so we're, back. we're pivoting back to the original pivot. Yes, to so the very first yeah. pivot, which was um, getting into media, which was from, yeah, I was working uh, hospitality. And so this is when I saw this ad that was basically like, do you want to work in television? <laughs> and I was like, yes. And they said, we're looking for 15 people aged 18 to 30 who have never worked in television before. Click on this link or whatever, go and apply. So I went and had a look at it. And it was, I saw that it was getting produced by Andrew Denton's production company. Um, at the time, it was called Project Next. Uh, and so I had, you had to do a, a long written application and a video. And so I did that and I sent that in. And the, <laughs> you'll find this funny because you know Andrew. The written application was like 40 pages and like essays. <laughs> and he later admitted to us that. It was designed purely as a length test, yeah. just so that he didn't have to go through applications from people who didn't really want it, who were just tossing it in in case. He's like, no, I want you to write. This is going to take you weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, he, uh, yes, I, that does not surprise me. I did no. not know that was true, but that does not surprise me. Yeah, so um, I got an interview for that, mm. and that was like... That was wild. Like, took a shift off from from Hospo and went to do this application. Sorry, do this interview. And now, who was the interview with? 
Well, this is the thing, right? The interview story is actually pretty amazing. We knew nothing about it. We yeah. just were told to show up to this building, walk in, walk into a room, and it's a really long co- conference table. And at the table is Andrew Denton, who like was not was not expecting to see. Um, Andy Neal, who uh, not maybe most people wouldn't know, but one of the absolute stalwarts of, of Andrew Denton's team, an ABC legend, used to work at Triple J, used to run Triple J, and a, a genuine grizzled legend, a hard man of television. I love him. Uh, who else was there? Polly Connolly, I think, was there, who's a, a great TV executive. Yeah, I think she's works... the executive producer of Gruen and Question yes, Everything. She's the best. And um, I, that, I think that was it. Uh I think. Anyway, to be totally honest, but the A team, like the A team, it isn't. They they haven't just sent in some junior producer or somebody to do the interviews. You're sitting down with the people who are going to make the show. Yes, no one. I was not expecting yeah. Andrew to be there, and that freaked me out. Like it was, it really took me off off guard. And then the <laughs> the interview process <laughs> went for. Probably an hour and a half, and it was just – it was like a pentathlon of weird media challenges. It was like, all right, stand up in front of this camera, um, You're pretend you're doing the news, and we've just told you that the camera's broken, you have to talk for five minutes, go. Like, stuff like that. Just – and, like, maybe 20 of those types of challenges, just back-to-back. Yeah. And so <laughs> – I'm sweating, you know, like sweating. I walk. I walk. I would out. love this, by the way. I wish any of my media stories had something like this because <laughs> I actually think I'd be really great at yeah, this. I'm sure I you think would. I'd actually be better at this than I am at anything else that would come from this. Like, I feel like we've finally discovered my forte. A bunch of improvised games around media skills would be what I'm good at. I think you would. You would have crushed. I. I. I look. I obviously did well enough, but I. Yeah. I. Um. It was. I don't think I crushed but then after so I don't know an hour an hour and a half of that they will walked us out of the door said thanks so much for coming and then you I walked out and a producer assistant producer came out and was like <laughs> now if you walk to the far end of the corridor you'll see another room and I'm like what? there's another fucking room <laughs> so I got there and I go in there and there is a, a, a handy cam and a room full of props uh-huh. and they said you've got an hour and an hour or something to make a five minute um, news package filmed in camera using just whatever's in this room on whatever you like. Good luck. Close the door. You're on your own. Um, and so I, I did that, <laughs> I think, I guess. And then we walked out and that was it. And then um, maybe a month or two later, I got a call um, while I was at work and they said, yeah, you've you've got the job. You're moving to Sydney in three months and uh, you will be making this brand new TV show for the ABC with you know, 15 people you've never met. And I was like, amazing. Like that was life changing. That was it. Um, so I packed up everything into a Corolla and drove to Sydney and um, got to the show and walked in the door to meet everyone who was there. And Veronica Milson was there. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, you're fucking kidding me. <laughs> they picked 15 people from around the country and Veronica's here. Uh, so, and so you just didn't know that. Like you had no, no idea. And did no she idea. know that you no were idea. involved? No. <laughs> no. So uh, it was crazy. Like I think a few other people knew each other because yeah. they actually had done a little bit of media. Daniel Itch, Mark mm-hmm. Fennell, a few people who had actually done a few things. But most of us had never done anything at all. Uh, and... Yeah, and that was it. We sort of 
um, we all met and, and I think maybe three or four months later we had a show on on prime time at the ABC and then, as you could imagine, it was a bit of a shit show. <laughs> so the show was called Hungry Beast. It's it one was. of those it, – it, it's funny, I have an interesting like view of this show like from – and what I mean by that is it was often being made like adjacent to the television show that I was making with the same people. So mm. I just had a, like a, a like a side view literally of, you know, the process and these young people and then the show I think might have even been on after our show on on air like mm. or yeah, I, I can't really remember but I do remember definitely the, you know, the environment of it all and like one of the great things that Andrew has always been passionate about is, you know, young talent and developing young talent and – the the imprint of that show, I mean, there were some good things that went to air on the actual show itself, but mm. the imprint of that show is bigger than the show itself. The imprint yeah. is the media careers that pretty much every single person involved in that show has had gone on to have. In, and, you know, at high, the, the footprint or the, you know, the entertainment footprint, the content footprint of yeah. like Hungry yeah. Beast is, is, is absolutely huge. Totally. And, uh, you know, it, I cannot. At the time, I didn't realize how insane it was for Andrew to do that. Like, now that I've been around for a while, that is just not a thing people do. It's not a thing they – like, It's a. it was a reputational risk. It was a, a huge cost. Like, it was a pretty expensive show to make in the – not in the world of, like, high-level TV, but in the world of ABC TV, it was not cheap because it was a lot of new people. We all needed to get trained. There was quite a few um, sort of high-level producers because they needed to make sure we were, mm -hmm. you know – we we literally came from nothing, never made TV, and four months later we were on air. So yeah, as you say, a lot of what we put to air was was kind of garbage, particularly in the first season. But we got we did three seasons, and I genuinely believe the third season was very good, um, which kind of makes sense, you know. First season was pretty pretty sketchy. Second season had was about half good, half, um, you know, sketchy, and the third season we really got it together and figured out a format and made it good. Uh, but yeah, as you say, those people are amazing. Like, I mean, I could na I could list them all, but I, d I don't know if that's like boring to people. But you know, f there's obviously me and Veronica. Um, Nick Hayden is the head of entertainment at the ABC now. Uh, Kirk Docker, who created You Can't Ask That, which is another huge show for the ABC, and made that with Aaron Smith, a great director, and Scott Mitchell worked on that, who's now the executive producer of the Seven AM podcast which is massive. Uh, people like Ali Russell, who's running 7.30 and then doing Four Corners and incredible stuff. Pat Clare, who I think has won nine Emmys now uh, for title design. He does all of the incredible like opening titles for like every good show that you've ever seen on like HBO and FX and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I don't know, Kirsten Drysdale, who made Reputation Rehab and was great. I, I'm, you know, I could keep going. Every, everyone who touched that show is is doing amazing stuff, and also a, a good, great friends of mine still. So that's been it was a life, completely life changing thing for me. I like that you mentioned all that, and the reason that I like that you mentioned all that was it was it was much more what the ABC used to be very proud of doing, and also something that the rest of the entertainment industry used to be quite grateful of. So in the early days of the ABC, there was a natural progression that, they say, the ABC would train a journalist, a reporter, whatever. They would 
build a reputation on the ABC. But then eventually, you know, 60 Minutes would come along or one of the commercial channels would come along and they would pay them a whole bunch of money because they were now very good at their job to go over and work at a commercial network. And that was Mm. actually good. That was a good thing because what that did was it meant that the commercial networks understood like that the ABC was very important and meant they didn't have to train those people and build them up themselves. It meant that those people moved out of the ABC into a different world, which then provided an opportunity for this next generation to come on. But also, it just meant that ABC shows were often looked at of like, don't judge this by this show right now. Judge it by, you know, the careers of everybody who, you know, jumped off this show, that they learnt how to do what they're going to do, you know, here. Because they've got to learn it somewhere. And that was always my argument around Tonightly and why of all the things to cancel, those are the shows that you don't cancel. Is like, it doesn't really matter how many people are watching the show right now. It matters how many people you're teaching how to make a show because they will take those skills and they will go off and make things that are better than Tonightly. And the people involved in Hungry Beast will go off and make things that are better than Hungry Beast. But you taught them how to do that by giving them this opportunity to learn how to be good and to learn how to do these things first. Totally. And then, like, you know, Tonightly produced by Dan Illich, also from Hungry Beast, and, you know, co-host of a podcast I do, The Best. I forgot to mention Mark Fennell. He's doing fine. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I think you mentioned Dan and Mark on the run-in, and everybody can just assume their careers, right? We all yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, was like, I was about to say, I was like, yeah, yeah, they're doing all right. Uh, I should mention they were also on the show, people who haven't seen it. It was, uh, yeah, they're doing great. And uh, you're so right. I mean, Dan did... Um, uh, at Home Alone Together as well, which is another show like mm. that. There were so many people, um, people like Vidya Rajan and people who popped up on that show and Tonightly who who I just love and who I didn't know before then. And, you know, tonight, uh, uh, yeah, of course, RIP Tonightly and, and all those things. But, yeah, hopefully, <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm too exhausted about uh, – I'm leaving the ABC mostly at the moment. So, I, um, you know, I don't want to – I feel like if I get into ABC chat, <clears throat> it'll be a podcast just for you and me. Uh, I mean, like often this podcast is just for men, I guess, but I understand what you're saying. So this is an interesting time though. Like, so firstly, I hope, this is just my hope for you, is that you take some time to enjoy people saying thank you. Like, you know, because it doesn't come again. Mm. It'll only be now. And yeah. And, you know, this is a good time to let people thank you for what you've done and very much enjoy, you know, the run home. I think that's that's the first thing is just enjoy it. But it's obviously also a time of great possibilities. Um, do you – you've got some things in place already. How much of your life is already in place versus how much have you given yourself permission to have – like a break to work out what it is that you want to do next. Like, where are you at? Ready to or ready to jump into everything, or think it would be good to have some sort of break built into the next evolution of it? I'm 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 about fifty fifty. So yeah. I've got we've got uh, I'll be doing like two podcasts. I'll be doing the one I do with Dan Illich, Irrational yes. Fear. I know he's been on the podcast talking about it in the, the past. Award winning podcast, Irrational Fear. Yes, that's right. Uh, yes. I. Yeah, that's crazy to me. But yes, it is. I mean, sorry, that made it sound like I think (laughs) the podcast sucks. (laughs) I think the podcast is great. Um, But we did, the context is we have won this comedy award three years in a row. And that is just, um, that is a good show, though. Like, I mean, it's a really well put together show. And like, you know, Dan is such a great champion of like, you know, that style of entertainment, but also, you know, talent, you know, and talent that isn't necessarily 
you know, he, he Dan books talent because he believes in the talent versus any particular, um, you know, something he will get back in return from his investment in others, which I think is always, you know, incredible. Like he, he invests in you without an expectation that you will invest in him in return, which, you know, I think is, is very, very hard and very rare in this industry. So, um, but yes, you're starting a, a, another podcast. Let's talk about that for a second because yeah, I'd yeah, like yeah. to talk about that. I'm excited about this one. So this is with Michael Hing, my radio yeah. partner. So that does make leaving Triple J a bit easier because I get to keep hanging out with Hingers. Uh, but it's called Silver Bullet. And basically the pitch is each week we get a guest on, a friend, a comedian, a celebrity of some kind, someone that people know, to come in and tell us about the thing that they have tried in their life that they thought would fix them. So... Uh, it could have been like, fix me completely. It could have been just like, I needed to improve on this. Basically, we're looking for the thing that they thought was a silver bullet. And then we go and try it, and then we all review whether or not it was a silver bullet for us. So uh, this kind of came out between Hing and I when we were doing radio during the pandemic. And you know what it's like? Sometimes you uh, get a lot of your darker jokes out before you're on air just to like yeah. wash wash the yeah, wash yourself clean just so they're not in the back of your mind yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and for us you know we were both going through some pretty difficult mental health stuff during the pandemic as everyone was and we just like we had to dump it all before it got to three and you know we didn't want to bring that energy to the to the radio and we, we felt like our job at that point was to just be buoyant um and so we would often be talking about the weird things we were trying to fix ourselves of uh, obviously, you know, therapy and yada yada, exercise, diet, they're the big three. You should do those. But I think as humans, we were always looking for something quicker and easier. Uh, so Hing, I think at one point, bought like a $400 titanium spinning top, um, which spins for ages. And if you watch it, it's supposed to help you meditate. Um <sighs> So, like, at the end of Inception. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. It's, it's, it's Inception. Yeah. If you ever wanted to see Inception but you want to see it fall, you need to buy this top. You can finish the film yourself. <laughs> yeah. That's what I like to do. I like to watch Inception and then get my little $400 spinny top out of its box just yeah. as the credits roll, just yeah. let it spin. Thank you, Chris. Take that, Christopher. Yeah. <laughs> I do it with Titanic as well. I do it with all of, all the big films. Um, yeah. So we just, I eventually we, just, we were like, it yes. can't just be us doing this. Like there must be other, everyone I think has something like this. So we started talking to people about whether or not they did. And we found out that most people had tried something weird in their life. And so uh, the first three episodes are out now, probably more by the time this goes out. But uh, we have Grace Tame, former Australian of the Year, who um, she was a Bikram yoga instructor. Mm -hmm. So she uh, got us to do Bikram yoga, which is something we'd never done before. Uh, the wonderful comedian Chris Parker from, from New Zealand, who I love, he got us doing flotation tanks. I don't know if you've ever done a flotation tank. There's sen sensory deprivation tanks. I haven't done one, no, but... Yeah. Uh, look, I'm interested without um, giving things away. Mm. So how many of them have you actually done already? We've done maybe like 10. And have point. any have any of the things been things you've done again since? Like have any of them stuck or are they all just 
you know, one and done's. Do you try them and then the conclusion is kind of, yeah, that was fine, <laughs> but I don't need to do it again? Or is there anything of the ones you've done where you're like, actually, you know what? Maybe a monthly visit to the flotation tank might be something that I need. Well, I'm I'm much more given to this sort of thing. Like, King was raised by two doctors. Yeah. He's, he's very, like, that. that – he's very raised in that world. I was raised by, you know – Kind of two hippies who wear a lot of linen and uh, you know grow their own food on a farm. So we we we're coming at this from very different worlds. I spent my summers at meditation camps. You know that was my childhood. So uh, I every time I I leave one of these like flotation tanks, I'm like I'm taking the brochure and I'm. You know, <laughs> I am this far from a cult at any given moment. I'm I'm so on the edge. Uh, whereas he is, is he yeah. he 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 resists joy. You know, he resists comfort uh, uh, for some reason. So there there are two that I've tried. One that I have started doing frequently, and one that I've done a couple of times. I can tell you if you like. The I will anyway. One of them is jaw massages, um, mm. TMJ massages, which Abby Chatfield recommended. And if okay. you're a, if you're a clencher, if you clench or you grind I your teeth, yeah, these massages are game changing. Like they, it's they put on gloves. The gloves yeah. are in your mouth. Where am I? Where am I getting this done? Um, a physiotherapist. If you oh. go to a physio and mm. and a ask, physiotherapist her, is going to put on gloves and put his <laughs> fingers in my mouth. So again, yeah, I, I don't. I, that might be my barrier entry. That might be too much for me. I think. Look, yeah, look. Yeah. For some people, um, you know, that's just a fun mm. extra on a night out. But for others, yeah, for me, it's a, a. I think I reckon I I would recommend giving it a go if you're a clencher, mm. particularly if you're such a clencher you get headaches, which I am. Um, it really it really changed the game. And the other one <laughs> is slightly less official, which was Becky Lucas's suggestion of uh, a martini and a dozen oysters. Oh, okay. Just as a sort of... Just as a way to, like, set some time mm. aside, do something that is nice. Yep. You know, and it, is, it isn't like drinking 10 martinis or it isn't like going out to dinner by yourself. It's just like a... It's fancy, don't get me wrong, but it's like a it's a treat that you can just do by yourself, you can do it with a friend, and it's like a little way to take a breath and do something nice. And I I you know, at the time I I think our baby was like 4 months old, and when I did that, it felt like one of the greatest gifts anyone had ever given me. Yeah, it feels like a quick affordable holiday. Yes. Right? Yeah. There's yeah. something about the tone of the drink and the oysters. I mean, I don't eat, I'm a vegetarian, but. Oh, sure. Although some people I've heard will eat, like, you know, oysters and stuff if they're they, vegetarian. Well, they say oysters are vegan because they've got no central nervous system. <sighs> it's weird how people make up these rules about <laughs> these things, isn't it? Like, yeah. It's so. Well, they say this. I'm like, I'm not here for the technicalities. Sure. I'm not here for the terms and conditions. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're a better man. I would be. I'd be. I'd be using that uh, media law degree I'd never got to really go through the fine print of vegetarianism. Oh no, but my like you know the one. Uh, just anyway, this is a very tangential, but it's it's like when I'm like at a barbecue and somebody's like, "Oh, do you mind if like the vegetarian like sausages go on the barbecue with the other oh, stuff?" Sure. I'm like, "Yes, like as long as I'm not eating the other stuff." Like, yeah. If they touch each other or whatever, I'm like, I'm not against that. Like, yeah. it's not the touching of my sausage against another sausage that killed the cow. You know, <laughs> take that out of context. That's my quote for this episode. This 
cow was bludgeoned to death by a soy sausage. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's what, the bolt to the back of the head is now just yeah. like a... Somebody bashing right. it with a knot dog. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, look, I'm conscious about time, uh, but... We we talked about you know you said hippie upbringing. We've talked mm. about your sense of always being one one good pitch away from a cult. Like you mm. know the idea that a lot of these conversations have been around this search for meaning, and at the heart of it, that's what the podcast is about. And it comes down to this central question that I ask of all my guests: What do mm. you think happens when we die? <sighs> Nothing. I think we just die. Mm. I think we just die. Uh, yeah, I think we're we're in the ground and and uh, worm food. But I, if it if I had a dr- if I could pitch, like if if someone was like, what do you reckon is the best case scenario? I would go with ghosts. Love to be a ghost. I'd love it if ghosts were just around. But I don't think they are. What sort of ghost would you like to be? I just think I'd love to be a like. I think it's kind of. I don't think you should get to be on the earth forever, interacting with the world. But I kind of like the idea that there's like a different tier where you're still around, you get to watch things, you get to sort of check things out. What are but you you're watching? Not in... What are you, like... Just You're just around. Imagine just being like, you could just, you know, did you ever want to go to, like, Brazil and go for a walk? You can now. You're a ghost. Go and just, like, travel. I mean, you can do that now, though. Like, you could go to Brazil and go for a walk. Like, it's not... You don't yeah. need to be a ghost. And uh, and and to be honest, <laughs> you could just go on YouTube and do like Google yeah. walking tour of Brazil and I bet <laughs> that somebody's put a GoPro on their head That's and true. walked around Brazil. So like Yeah, but it's time, you know. It takes up a lot of time. <laughs> Much, and, um, much rather do this when I'm dead. Yeah, I think so. And also, I think if I'm honest, being a ghost is just a way to get around airfares. Yeah, it does seem to be in your <laughs> yeah, world. Yeah, I can just get, I can sneak onto a boat or something. You know what but I mean? But this is implied also that ghosts just have freedom to travel, whereas in most representations of ghosts, they seem mm. to be tied to, you know, a specific house or a specific family or a specific yeah. moment. They don't they. Yeah, they do, but that's but that's you're all just made like up, a Will. travel ghost. You're <laughs> yeah. just like the Anthony Bourdain of ghosts, just like on your world adventures. Yeah, I'm riding for Ghost Lonely Planet. You know, I'm out there. But just... isn't the whole point of travel also the 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 smells and the tastes and the you know mm. going to a new place and experiencing new food? Like as a ghost, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, but. Look, it's either that or nothing, Will. Mm. I guess I'm trying to like I want to try to mm. come up with a compromise. Okay. I don't I don't really I don't want to live forever. Uh but I don't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. I, that, that's that probably seems like a pretty sensible compromise, honestly, yeah. to Thank be you. a human being. <laughs> I, yeah. I get that. Particularly if you think that the answer is that nothing happens, then yeah. Then you're like, oh well, I guess might as well take advantage of it while it's here. If someone was like, look, nothing happens, mm. but we've got this ghost option, mm. I'd be like, please show me the ghost. How door. do you feel about ghost travel? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you could, you've always wanted to go to Brazil. <laughs> Not enough to go to Brazil, or even Google a walking tour of Brazil. But <laughs> but now it's that a you're way- a ghost with all this extra time, it's a way to go to the countries that it's like you're not. Gonna, it's not Italy. You do that a lot. Yeah, sure. But maybe like Moldova yeah. or something. You yeah. know what I mean? One of the uh-huh. do that as a ghost. Your backup yeah. countries. So your version of astral traveling is actually just traveling in an astral yes. state. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just waiting in line at Virgin, being like, "Fucking hell, another delayed flight." 
An endless holiday. Um, here's a question that Kurt Bronella asked of Pete Holmes on Pete Holmes's podcast. Would you prefer to know when or how you die if you had to choose one? I think it's got to be when. It just has to be when. I I can't. I can plan around when, but I and I would knowing how. Look, I guess there's if they were like it's one of the good ones. Then I'd be like, all right, sure. Um, but if it was one of the bad ones, I mean, it would ruin my life forever. It, I, I would all around every door, I'd be waiting for the the attacker that stabs me or whatever it is. I am um, like, I am worried about the way that I die currently yeah. without knowing, without having like a real insight into <laughs> it's going to be a guy called Greg. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could, you know, I could be ruining relationships with great Gregs. Yeah, so I mean, this guy, like, this could be your best friend. I'm like, no, I'm sorry, sorry. I just can't let you get close. <laughs> yeah, I uh, no, it's got to, it has to be when. I actually, I think I would kind of like to know when. I know yeah, that it, that a lot of people would be like, I don't want to know either. Mm. I think when would um would just allow a lot of convenient scheduling for me. I hundred percent would like to know when. Mm. And I don't mind what the answer is. I can, but it's it, it just gives me a sense of, you know, because I've always people say like live every day like it's your last day. Mm. Uh, no, it's unsustainable because it's, it's also not my last day. Yeah, most likely. Yeah, and now and tomorrow I'm going to have to deal with the consequences of how I live fucking today. So you, yeah, you can't sprint a marathon. No, like your legs but if don't I have knew it in it you. Was my last day? I'd be yeah. happy to live like that. And yes. so just tell me how long I've got left. Totally. And I'll even out what I need to get done in that time. 100%. Yeah. But then even that's crazy because really when you start thinking about it, what I need to get done, what even is that? I mean, what is that? What is that to you? I mean, you have a family. So that, I mean, for, I think that changes people, right? Like, you know, in regard to how you view the world is the fact that you've brought life into the world that adds some extra layer of, you know, responsible. What is, what is it that you, Need to get done. Let's just well, say I get. I tell you, it's. Well, let's give you a good. How old are you now? Like mid- thirty-eight. Thirty-eight. Okay. So yeah, average life expectancy is probably another forty or so years. Let's give mm. you forty-five years, just like on average. So let's say it's forty, forty-five years. What do you got to get done? Well, I have to say, Will, knowing that there's not a um, Emmy Award for greatest radio show has really changed <laughs> your things. One, your biggest dream is gone, unfortunately. So, so firstly, I'm, spend I'm a doing... lot of years lobbying the Emmys to That's bring right. in a new category. I'm doing I'm doing a lot yeah. of pivoting on the on the fly here. Uh, I mean, no, it does. Having a having a, a baby has changed the focus a little bit, and I I kind of hoped it would, if I'm honest. I mean, it should probably. No, I would that's think. totally. But I was really nervous about having a baby because um, I I had been pretty focused on myself, which I think is normal um, for a long time, and I was worried that that I couldn't transfer out of that mode. You know, I was worried that I would have a baby. And the baby would be there and I still wouldn't be able to think about the baby enough and I'd still be focused on myself. But it, it is crazy how naturally <laughs> that snap happens. Like you very quickly would throw yourself in front of a train for this new thing that you don't even know. It's, it is pretty weird how whatever it is that is in you 
that makes that happen happens. I um, mean, it's pretty handy too for the survival of the species because yeah, in general, babies are pretty annoying. Yeah. Like if you, if you took out the compelling reason you have to keep them alive, a lot of what they're doing just on paper is absolutely no good. 100%. And this is like, I'm, I'm because she's only six yeah. months, I really feel like I have, a, I still, when you talk to parents of people who are a bit older, They've forgotten that they ever thought like you, but I really have one foot in each camp right now. I remember seven months ago thinking thinking that babies were pretty annoying and being quite worried about having to look after one. And I I have another foot in the camp of like, I had to just like clean yogurt out of my baby's nose this morning and it filled me with joy. And that is an unimaginable thing for seven months ago, Lewis. Like you can't. You can't imagine that cleaning goo out of someone's nose would bring you joy or that I would like be cheering her on when she poos because it makes me really proud. Like it's madness. It doesn't make any logical sense to 7 months ago, Lewis. Yeah. Uh so yeah, uh, it does I think the what I would like to get done now is much is is now it is not like me for me as much. It still is. Like I think our work involves a little bit of ego and and that's okay. It's somewhere on the spectrum of you know, that's a, as long as it's some. Uh, you know, the level is okay for me. I'm I'm okay with fulfilling my own little ego and getting my applause, which I love. Um, but it is a little more about now how getting that for to keep uh, her alive and me alive and the family alive as long as possible, so I can see as much of her life as as I can, as well as as much of my own. And um, and when you it comes to being a parent, particularly in the context of what you've just said, how does your anxiety relate to that? Like, do you yeah. have a seventy percent policy to parenting? Because I imagine parenting even more so than something like a radio show. Look, there are days when you can probably be a hundred percent radio show where you really nail one, like you yeah. almost got everything right. But there are probably rare days in parenting. <laughs> Where you get like a hundred out of a hundred for your day. So, have you had to have that think about how to be a good parent too? Genuinely, and, and because of the time it takes out, you have to, you sort of have to go seventy percent partner as well, which is not super comfortable sometimes. Uh, you do have to seventy uh, percent parent. I think would be great for me, um, partly because at least with a radio show, I am in control of it. Mm. Like if it goes well or badly, that is mostly me and. Oh, obviously, and Hingers as well. But like with a baby, she's doing her own thing. Yeah. <laughs> there, like I, I am, I'm there. Yeah. I'm around. I can't control that. So the idea of going, I will yeah. fashion this into a 100% day is. You actually really have to sit back and and go. What is it? What is she? What is she finding fun? Let's go with that, as opposed to what can I do today to force you to have fun. Um, so you, you're much more um, help. You're like you're sort of corralling her into having as close to a seventy percent day as you can. Um, but you know, <laughs> it's yeah, they're ups and downs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's new. It's a very new thing to you, and I. Yeah. Met, but I just was interested in relation to everything else. How yeah, that no, felt. look, the it, it is. Um, it took me a really long time. To, in fact, part of the, because I take medication for anxiety and only have since for a couple of years. And part of the reason I started was I was having a conversation with my girlfriend and we talked about babies and she had been like, you know, I she's an obstetrician. So she delivers babies for a living, loves babies. 
And she was like, look, you know, we don't even together for a few months. She's like, just so you know, at some point I want to have kids. And I was like, I think I do, but I, I have a lot of worries about whether or not I'll be a good parent and whether or not I'll be a good partner and whether or not I'll be able to live with the anxiety I have every day and still have time to love a child and yada, yada. And she was like, well, what do you need? And I said, I probably need six months to panic internally and then I can give you an answer. And she was like, well, that's fine, but also that's probably something you need to deal with. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You can have that time, but that's not how most people work. And uh, so, and I realized that that is sort of this coping mechanism I'd come up with, which is like something gives me a really stressful problem. I put it in the back of the brain. I let it stew and stress me out for a really long period of time until the back of my brain comes up with some kind of computation that the front of my brain finds acceptable. <laughs> and uh, and it was at that point I was like, oh, that yeah, that's not that's not good. That's not that's not going to be that's not going to work long term. So that was when I kind of got a bit more serious about fixing my myself, and uh, which is obviously not complete, but moving forward. And it made it so that I was like, okay, I am. I think I'm going to be okay at <clears throat> having a baby. I'm, you know, I, I, I think I could do seventy percent. I felt comfortable that I could be a seventy percent dad, <laughs> and I know that world's most seventy percent dad is not a mug, <laughs> but that should be. Though. That's like best dad is too high an expectation. I it's can't like do it. Again, like it's like an Emmy for best radio show. Yeah, it yeah. It's just something. <laughs> That it turns out they don't actually give out despite the merchandise available. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I, I can do, yeah. I was, I, could, I got comfortable with 70% and uh, we had a baby and she's a delight. Uh, okay. So, uh, I, again, I'm, I'm, I am wrapping up, but it takes me a little while to wrap up. So, That's I apologize. Fine. No, no, that's for okay. That. I don't need, I'm good. I'm good for time. Okay. Great. So, um, I would love to know from you what is the, Best or worst piece of advice that you've ever had, or both, but I, I like good advice or bad advice. Mm. Do you know what? I think um, something that I found really useful when I was starting in this kind of world, um, Andrew Dentons did say, he, one of the things he said to me was early on, we were putting this show to air, this TV show to air, and you know, I'd never written comedy for TV before, so sometimes it was okay. Sometimes it wasn't very good. And we were on prime time. So we were getting, yep. and it was, Twitter had just started. And so we were, it wasn't quite in its most toxic form yet. No, but it was but it was new to, like, we didn't have at that stage, we hadn't had such open access to people's opinions. Mm. And we were, as a society, I, I joked about this recently on the weekly, but I remember at the time having massive fights with Andrew around, he was because he was all about the new media and like mm. you know really embracing of it probably in a way that despite the fact that he's 10 15 years older than I am I wasn't right mm. like mm. because there was just part of me that was like I don't want to have tweets on the bottom of the screen I don't, I don't <laughs> this none of this makes sense to me like it doesn't yeah. like even though I was on Twitter and stuff I was like we don't need to be incorporating that and we would have yeah. these debates back and forward around these ideas but in a lot of ways none of us knew anything because we were all going from having these small amounts of feedback about our life and our world and our work, you know, like as a comedian, like it would be a review maybe that you would get that would set, like you'd be like, okay, I guess that's what it is. Or like there might be some message boards you could find where people might talk about comedy. But the idea that then suddenly everybody 
I, I would answer the phones at Triple J and occasionally mm. you get a bit of, you know, bring back Mikey and Paul or whatever. <laughs> you know, I thought Mikey sure. and Helen were the best. Yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah. But, in, but there wasn't this, you know, a text line or a Twitter feed or like Facebook or like just capacity to immediately contact people and give feedback. And this was very much the early days of everybody getting their head around how much of that was real, how much of that was important, how much of that should you pay attention to. Like it was – no one knew. Mm. And mm. I think Hungry Beast, like, yeah, it, it was it was at the time when everyone thought that someone having like a negative opinion about something online meant that that that, that was something that needed to be cared about or addressed, yes. whereas now yeah. we know that – if, if people have negative opinions about everything online. Totally, totally. And also, like, I think the very nature of it of, like, hey, here are 15 mm. new people who we think are going to be great at media yeah. was a bit like, oh, really? Well, we'll see. Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Firstly, so, it's not me, and I'm on Twitter, so I kind of <laughs> wish it was me. So fuck you. Yeah, fuck yeah. these young people <laughs> and their aspirations. Fully. <laughs> and, and then I think there are lots of people who are also, like, uh, either applied or didn't even think no. to apply or whatever who are like, oh, I could be better than that. And maybe that's true, but like we were there, and um, and I had gone from like literally working at a bar to four months later being on national TV mm. with very little <laughs> preparation for what that <laughs> meant in terms of uh, exposure. And I found it, I I found it really difficult, and I don't think I knew how difficult I was finding it at the time. And I think by the time I'd done a few years of that, and then Triple J, and and I don't think I really reckoned with how much that had weighed on me until I was really deep into the into the into the beast, really into the mix of it all. Oh, but um, I mean, again, it was a bit of a perfect storm of like that sort of show. Yes, for all the reasons you've said, would attract that sort of feedback. But it was also the early days of us not understanding. Like you said, it wasn't at Twitter's most toxic, mm, you know, hunting yeah. impacts, but. It was actually at a point that it was almost more worse than that, which was when everyone thought that ever that all those opinions were important, yes, and that networks thought they were important, and newspapers would write about them as if they were important. Whereas now we realise it's all just the white noise of opinion that we're constantly demanded by everybody that we're meant to have. I used to have this um, joke in my stand-up because you just just reminded me of about because I said like you know I hope you've enjoyed the show, but like. If you haven't, it's not my fault. I'm not qualified to do this. Like, I have a, I have a journalism degree. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I didn't study yeah. how to do comedy or, like, TV presenting. Like, I've won awards for things. I'm like, I don't know how to do this. Yeah. No one ever sat me down and told me how I was meant to do things. Like, this is – I'm very funny for a journalist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, you're doing great. Um, yeah. Don't judge yeah. me by the standards of people who've studied, you know, media or even media law. Didn't even study media law. Yeah. I'm not that close. I haven't heard um, Peter Hitchener do a joke like you for a, no. for a while. You know, he what I mean? is or- pretty funny, Hitch. Though I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not even going to rule him out in that regard. Uh, um, okay, so yes, advice. We were talking oh, yeah. about advice. Um, so basically what he said to me quite early and I didn't even approach him with like a, Hey, this is struggling or I'm struggling with this or anything. But he just said, what he said to me was like, just so you know, if someone tells you something isn't funny, they're right. And I was like quite taken aback by that. And I was like, fuck Jesus. Oh no. (laughs) And he's like for them. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. He's like, and that doesn't matter to you. (laughs) Like, and I, and there are times where I have to. Because it's very easy, I think, when people start attacking you to think that they're wrong 
and and that you are in fact right, when really everyone is right. Like if someone says oh, that isn't funny, you have to go, yeah, you're right for you. That isn't funny for you, and that's okay. And I, that helped me a lot because I think there are times when you do get criticism or feedback where you get quite defensive. I still do, and I it's not a part of me that I like, and I tr- I'm trying to be less like that. But, you know, it's like you put your heart out there. You're very vulnerable when you're doing these sorts of things, and, and feedback can sometimes really sting. And some, I think a coping mechanism that I had at one point was to, not out loud, but internally be like, this fucker is an idiot. Like, this person on Twitter who's telling me I'm not funny is a is a is I bet they're trash. I bet they've never done anything funny and just like really work myself into a tiz yeah. about it. And and then you could be like, great, you'd sort of feel good about it, you know? Like, yeah, that's right, they're idiots. I'm great at my job. And it it's just like that's such a waste of energy. It doesn't deserve that much time. It's so much quicker to just be like, hey, they're right for them. Yeah, well, I mean, they are right for them. It's a sense of humour for a reason. That mm. yeah, it's that weird thing when somebody says, you know, you're not funny or whatever. You're like, well. Of course I am to some people. I have like a <laughs> yeah, you know, I've built an entire career based on that one thing. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so yes, I mean, clearly at least some people. It's even, if I'm not funny at all, it's an even bigger credit to me that I've managed to con people <laughs> for yeah. 30 years into thinking that I am. In fact, if anything, that's to be more admired. Yeah. But the truth of it is that often I think also, I'm like, I'm not even sure I'd be for me. You know, I'm not even saying that what I do would be for <laughs> yeah, me. Sure. And yeah. Yeah. I understand why it wouldn't be for other people. And also, you, you mentioned Ricky Gervais earlier. So I, I, I think Ricky's such a great example because I think that The Office and some of Extras are some of the cleverest, funniest television that has ever been made, like, you know, and changed television in, mm. you know, in, in a lot of ways, led to other great shows in the same way as Hungry Beast led to other great shows, you know, shows like The Office led to, you know, other people making work in that vein or in that style or showing that it could be done and, you know, yeah. so legendary. Totally. But, like, I watched his, like, latest stand-up show and I wanted Oof. to, like, it made me want to murder people. It's bleak. Like, mostly Ricky Gervais. But, yeah. like, but just in yeah. general, just, like, like it made me so angry and I thought it was just so, and again, so that's even the same person. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. not even me saying it. Like, <laughs> I can say this one person I think made this mag- magnificent stuff and also made something that I found, like, you know, like some of the worst comedy I've ever seen in my entire life. And so that's just taste. That's yeah. just, for me, that's. I liked one thing that he did and I don't like this other thing that he did. Yeah, but I, I, Ricky Gervais is great because there are, and I know you've talked about this with other people recently, so feel free to chop away. But I, I think if you are in, maybe this is just all jobs, but certainly in comedy, you, you do tend to watch people fall off a cliff. Geniuses fall off a cliff. The best people in the world, like, Monty Python fellow, like not even just like comedically, but just like ethically, <laughs> just like these people who were so funny and so wonderful become unfunny and terrible people. And, uh, and I have often, I don't know what you think about this, but for, I think part of that, if someone tells you you're not funny, they're right thing for me is a way to try to insulate against becoming like that, which is, don't fight criticism. Like, you don't have to agree with it. But if you spend your days fighting criticism, then all you are is just a person. You just have an anger. Like, all you are is anger. 
and there is no joy in watching that. Or maybe there is for five minutes in an hour, but like if you make your personality defensive anger, it is such a waste of your talent and your time. And I think trying to like when people, if someone tells me I suck, kind of going, that's okay, is a way I hope of when I'm an older person not being someone who is motivated comedically by anger. It, I, I do think that you're right about the anger taking over everything. And I think it's like I'm interested in why that is. I, I don't know why it is, but it happens so often that – so I, I often. One of the things, you know, here's an interesting. So when I was first doing, uh, like just becoming successful, um, I was on Rove Live being interviewed and, uh, well, we were talking about the glass house and how we, it was originally, like you said, with Hungry Beast, it originally had a different working title. I can't remember what it was called, but it was something terrible, like, you know, the, if some Friday night show or sure. whatever the fuck it was, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, we were tr- just riffing on ideas, trying to come up with like a title for the show. And I told the story on Rove that I wanted to call the show Stick It Up Your Ass, Esther Cribbies, because Esther Cribbies was this teacher at school who had said that I wasn't <laughs> funny and I was never going to be funny. Sure. And my, I, I remember afterwards she got really mad, at, right. like, you know, at the fact sure. that I had done this, even though it was, it was a true story. But yeah. It was the first time that I'd heard my manager talk to me about it at the time and I said, well, I just told a true story about something that happened. And he goes, yeah, but what you've forgotten is you're not a student at that school anymore. You're mm. like a national profile person on television, on like a big TV show, like, you know, making fun of this person by name. And he said, that's just disrep- disproportionate yeah. to the fact that she once said that you weren't funny. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's and just is, a disproportionate it, response. And yeah. this is the problem that I see so often in these, like, you know, Dave Chappelle, someone says something mean about him on Twitter and he decides to dedicate 60 minutes of a Netflix show to it. That to it's me is crazy. just, it's a, I'm not saying don't have a response. That's just a disproportionate response. Yeah. Like, you know, like Ricky Gervais, like Googles his own fucking name on Twitter to respond to people who are criticizing him. And yeah. I'm like, what are you doing with your day, man? Honestly, these people should be just doing victory laps. <laughs> right. They should be getting like you're one of the most uh, successful comedians in the history of comedy. Yeah. You don't and need to convince everybody. It's just like <laughs> if Ricky Yeah. I would love nothing more than for Ricky Jim. Yeah. Like his early stand up. I still, I think, I mean, I haven't watched it in a while, but I still would back it as being so funny, the animals and, you know, like, I don't know. I I remember it being really funny. I, I haven't watched it in a while. It might be, who knows. But I remember it just being so clever and so funny. And this, like, he wasn't even a stand-up, you know what I mean? He would just, like, write this thing and bash it out in six months. Like, infuriatingly talented. And and the greatest television show in, in like, the last, whatever, th- couple of decades all he has to do is just show up and be nice. That's it. And he would be, and he would have the yeah. best life in the world. And maybe he does anyway. But I'm just yeah. like, man, how are you fumbling the ball on this? You were given such an, you gave yourself the greatest run in of, of all time. You've alley ooped yourself, and now you're just slapping the ball away. What are you doing? Ah, <laughs> oh, uh, crazy. It's very interesting. But it, it, okay, a couple of a couple of final things before we go. Hmm. If I could just get like. If I had the talent to give you any power, like any skill, 
you know, magic wand style. You don't have to mm. like study piano for seven years or whatever it is. You just wake up one day and you immediately have a skill. You're good at something. What what would you love that thing to be? I honestly think singing. Oh yeah. Okay. I would love to be because I I think I've always had a thing about mm. my voice not being very nice and it, it isn't. But like not even as a singing voice, just even as a talking voice. Like you know, I have to listen to my own voice a lot. Mm. And imagine when I hear people in in particularly like if you're in comedy and someone who is like really funny and then they start to sing, you're like, you fucker, <laughs> you've got it all. <laughs> You've got it all. Yeah. Like the idea that you could just like get up, you're already in front of the microphone, you're telling a few jokes, people are like this guy's crushing, and then you mm. just like hit a jack or whatever, and yeah. you're singing. Like I just reckon, and I also, um, I don't know, I whenever you just, whenever I listen to people who really sing, sing in front of me, it is, I, I you know, you get a real opportunity when you work at Triple J to see some super talented people you know, doing some things that not many people get a chance to see, singing, like Arctic Monkeys or whatever, singing in a studio in front of you, just like you're the only person in there. Or so, Like, it is crazy and it is a huge privilege and, a, and it. every time I see it, I'm like, well, that's the coolest skill in the world. I'm pretty sure that's the coolest skill in the world. So I think singing. Yeah, that's a good answer. Uh, final question, mate. Thank you so much for doing this, by the way. The oh, new podcast so- is called Silver Bullet. Um, mm. You still have some time left on Triple J if people want to uh, tune in to listen yes. to Hobber and Hing uh, yep. do, do their victory lap, say goodbye. Yeah, we're actually doing a, a physical victory lap as well. We're doing a tour, Hobber and Hing's last show ever tour, which would and be really fun. Are you doing a – so is it for the radio, as in like you're doing a show in different places, or are you? Do, is this an external project to the radio? It's uh, it's kind of both. So we'll do one or two shows will be while we're still on air. Yep. In fact, just one, I think. And then the rest will be after we finish to sort of have a chance to say goodbye to anyone who who's interested. <laughs> oh, nice. No, that's great. I mean, Adam and I did a show called The Last Time when in our final year of – and it was so much fun. Like we literally yeah. just were on stage answering questions really. Like we would just get a bucket of questions from the audience and then we would just answer them about the show and mm. things that had gone on and all those sort of things. It was great fun. We had yeah. a really good time doing it. That's, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, well, we'll certainly do a bit of that. We'll do some of the segments live and get some of the regular talent that we have on – joining us on stage so i'm really looking forward to it it'll be it'll be nice okay that sounds like a very good way to say goodbye to everybody and Mm -hmm. uh final question thank you so much for doing the podcast today i really super appreciate it It, uh, you are doing it from triple j the abc Mm. there was an offer made to walk up the road to southern cross (laughs) austereo which i thought was very um humble of you to because nothing that the like newspapers would have loved more than you walking into a southern cross <laughs> stereo building literally the day after you announced your resignation <laughs> from triple j you really could have got a couple of extra days of headlines if you'd yeah. done that but um uh, I, appreciate I mean i love it. to i do love going to sca it's always nice to um <laughs> i do i or do Nova, love or uh the I, irn network the, i'm a huge fan of all of their shows of and the shows. networks and all I think shows the, and all networks i think their content directors are all geniuses <laughs> and you have my number <laughs> uh if i had a time machine and i could offer you a, a trip either back or forward in time mm. um firstly would you go back or forward forward okay and how far forward would you go uh to like i think i'd like to know maybe like 20 years 
probably it'd give me a sense of the world I was bringing my child into, I think. And I, do you know what I, I hope? I, because I, I, I would have in the olden time, I, I, if you'd asked me this question a few years ago, I would have said back. I would have said something like, go back to, you know, a time where I could have a cool time. But now I'm. I need to know what's coming. I need to know what's coming down the line. I need. I need to prepare. I need to know if I need to build the bunker. I, I need to know what's coming. Do yeah. I need to go to higher ground? Do I yeah. need to go to lower ground? Do I yeah. need to go to Tasmania? <laughs> That's right. Do I need to build an ark? Well, like I need to prepare yeah. for what's coming. Uh, so I think. I think that's. I need to know. I need to know what's mm. what to prepare for, um, and what sort of world my child is coming into, and uh, and what. I mean, imagine if you got if you got twenty years ahead, and they just like some person had figured out a way to like make solar panels the most important thing, or like they'd figured out a way to turn a glass of water into fuel or whatever. Yeah. And you're like, oh, what a bloody load off! Like I can relax. I all of the things that I worry about, all of the world-ending apocalypses that haunt my dreams, I could just let that go. I, I think guess it's unlikely. So. It's unlikely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but imagine, I've got a real gambler's mentality about the future. I'm like, imagine, Will, we could win the lotto. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. And the good this news, could be the one. And one of the two companies that run everything by then <laughs> will yeah, have the right. rights to that. So. That's it. Yeah. I think I look forward to Alphabet or Meta or whatever having the secret to turn water into power <laughs> and giving it to... Very select group of people <laughs> at Davos. Anyone who signed up to Threads in the first week and a couple of people at Davos. Yeah, if you buy a blue tick on Threads, you can get our magical fuel solution. <laughs> hey, mate, thank you so much for doing this. It was really uh, nice to have a chat with you today. A real pleasure. No, I'm a huge fan, as you know, so thank you so much for having me. Listener.